Welcome to Fantasy or Reality, the GPP. Whatever road you took to get here doesn't matter. What matters is you're here. My hope is that we all can help one another in this journey. Hi, welcome to Fantasy or Reality, the GPP. I'm Steve. I'm your host. My last day to bet was 5221. So many of you listeners know that most of what I do is I just come on here, talk about my thoughts and feelings. I've had my wife share her story. I've had my friend come on, but this is my first true interview, and I'm really excited to have with us Ted Hartwell. Uh, hi, Ted. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very excited to uh, have Ted come on and share his story. I first heard him on Brian Hatch's All in the Addicted Gamblers podcast. It was a very powerful story, and I'm very excited to be able to present his story here. Um, just talk about what's going on in the gambling world, how we're doing with our recovery. And um, so my first question, Ted, um, like I was talking before, you know, when I first started therapy, um, to really deal with my gambling addiction, I sat down with my therapist and the first question he asked me was, Steve, who are you? So Ted, who are you? Uh, so that's a great question. I'm a, I'm, I'm a lot of things. Um, I'm a, a research scientist uh, at the Desert Research Institute, with a, a background in archeology span and radiation monitoring. Uh, I'm a professional cellist by night. Um, I've been a soccer coach, volleyball coach. I'm a husband. I'm a father to a precocious 16-year-old girl, and I am a person in long-term recovery from a gambling problem. So I'm all of those things. Fantastic. I'm a musician as well. That's why I was very excited to have you on here, too. It's nice to have a fellow musician. Um, yeah, so um, when was your last day to bet? September 14th, 2007. I made my last bet. That's incredible. Um, all right. So I, I'd like to talk a lot about recovery on this podcast, but of course we can't get into recovery until we talk about how our gambling started and how, you know, it all began. So you want to tell us a bit about your story, you know, how you started and uh, just a bit of that, please. Sure. Yeah. So I, I started fairly young, um, like a lot of people who, who develop a gambling problem. I, I was gambling by at least the age of 10. It could have been earlier than that, but, but that's kind of my earliest recollection. And a lot of that gambling involved um, uh, family trips, actually, from Lubbock, Texas to Rio Doso, New Mexico, where there's a horse race track. Mm -hmm. And we would camp in the mountains outside of town, which was uh, great fun as a kid. Um, although I'd come to suspect later on in life, it's probably so my dad could uh, save money on hotels so that he had more to bet on the horses. Um, be that as it may, it, it was fun. And, and then we'd go in and we'd spend the whole day at the racetrack. And that was fun too, because my dad would give each of the kids uh, 20 bucks and that was ours to gamble on the horses. So by the age of 10, I already knew how to read the history of the horses in the program and and knew all of the horse racing jargon. And I'd tell my dad, you know, which horses to go place bets on for me. So I was in action from a, a pretty young age. Um, by the time I was a teenager, my dad had taught me how to play poker. And by the time I was in high school, I was playing in a regular weekly poker game um, with my own father and a bunch of uh, mostly university professors from Texas Tech and a few other professionals from the um, It was a big ego trip for me as a as an adolescent because here I was you know invited to play in a game with guys that were you know two three four times my own age um, also a way to, for me to bond in some ways with with my dad um, 
that was also the time that I uh, started a little sports betting. Um, one of the guys in that game had a connection to a, a bookie. And while that wasn't really my primary gambling activity, you know, week to week, I usually had a bet or two down on a, a couple football games. Um, by the time I got to college, I had uh, graduated to a pretty high stakes game that involved some of the same gentlemen in that game. Um, uh, the, that earlier game was sort of just nickel by quarter, very friendly and, and social game. And this one was still friendly and social, but, but higher stakes where single hands could get up in the hundreds of dollars. Um, a little bit uh, strangely looking back on that time through the lens of today, I still had control of my gambling at that point in time. And all I mean when I say that is I, I took only what I could afford to lose to that game. And if I lost that stake at any point, I, I left the game and I didn't come back until I'd saved up enough money to play again. But a little bit perversely, I actually won enough money in that game over time to move out of the house, get my own apartment. Um, I quit my job at Pizza Hut. I had a full ride scholarship to Texas Tech, so I had no educational bills and I was financing my whole life off this once a week poker game. Um, it wasn't because I was a fantastic poker player, really. It's, it's primarily because there were a couple guys in that game who already had a, a pretty serious gambling problem. And um, while I didn't recognize that at the time, uh, these guys would stay in almost every hand till the last card, trying to catch their miracle card. And even if they caught their miracle card, sometimes it wasn't the best hand at the game. And while these were two very bright guys, I just thought they were the world's stupidest poker players and I was happy to take their money and I suspect everybody else in the game was too. And it gave me a little overinflated sense, I think, of my own uh, skills in that type of gambling. And so when I got my graduate degree from Texas Tech and got offered a job in Vegas uh, in 1991, I was pretty excited, not only uh, because I got a job um, doing archaeology with the university system and um, and later on uh, playing with the Las Vegas Philharmonic when they formed, um, but because I, I knew what the World Series of Poker was and my fantasies around gambling at that time were, were pretty focused on saving enough, up enough money to enter the big game at the World Series of Poker. Um, which, you know, in 1991, most people had no idea what that was unless you lived in Vegas or were a hardcore poker player. This is pre-internet, uh, pre-ESPN as far as poker, poker went. And so, uh, um, but long story short, the, the day would come in the early 2000s when I would look back on that time and realize that I had lost enough money playing video, video poker, which became my primary gambling go-to game to have entered the big game at the World Series of Poker every single year since I'd lived in Vegas and yet I never had. And for those of your listeners who may not be aware, that's a $10,000 entry. That's uh, something that was the same uh, back then as it is today. The only difference today is that there are thousands and thousands more people that enter, enter that tournament than ever did back then. And um, my gambling problem didn't show up uh, immediately. It was a very gradual thing. Uh, I couldn't understand the appeal of the machines when I first moved uh, to Vegas. Um, and I thought, gosh, this is a sucker's bet. Why do people even play this? You know, you're never going to beat a computer chip over the long run. Um, at least with live poker, I knew I might have an advantage over certain players and learn their um, learn the way they played and maybe be able to um, get an advantage just in terms of experience. But sometimes out of boredom, I would sit down at a machine while I was waiting for the table a seat to open up at the table and uh, 
tap away at those uh, buttons. Um, and um, you know, the day came when I finally hit a, a, a significant jackpot on one of those machines, and then I hit another one um, a short time later. And gradually, the way I thought about gambling changed, and I played more and more video poker and less and less live poker until the day came I was almost exclusively playing video poker, um, although I would often play some sports bets uh, uh, after it it got to the point where it was really bad because I knew that when, um, not if, but when I lost all of my money playing video poker, I might have a winning sports bet that I could then take down and you know sit down in front of that machine and plunk away, which probably sounds crazy to most of you listeners, but that was, that was where my mindset was uh, by the end. So that's kind of the, the general arc of my story. I can go into more details if you like, but I'll, I'll let you kind of guide that discussion. Okay. Um... Well, I'm curious, you know, how uh, I, I, I know you're in obviously in recovery and um, after listening to your story on Brian's podcast, um, I know there was a few uh, relapses. Um, it's, I can imagine how difficult it is, especially back then living in Las Vegas, being right around, you know, your triggers, your, you know, your gambling centered activities. Um, how difficult was that? you know, when you were trying to stop? Um, and how, how do you handle that now? Yeah, so like I say that the problem didn't happen overnight. It was very gradual. So it was for me, it was very insidious. It kind of crept up on me over time. And one of my big, um, you know, a, a big part of my denial uh, that I had a problem centered around the fact that for most of my life, gambling had been a fun activity. It had been a way for me to make some money. And um, I'd been able to set and keep those limits of both money and time. And so when I started to not be able to do that consistently, it was very confusing to me uh, at first, long before it became a financial issue or started to affect other parts of my, my life. I was confused why, you know, sometimes I would go back to the ATM and, and try to win back uh, the money. And I got into this cycle, a lot of uh, your listeners uh, who might have had developed a gambling problem will we'll recognize of, you know, always trying to get back to even. Um, and, you know, on those occasions when I did get back to even, I always rationalized, well, it's like I just walked in, you know, let's try to win some money. Or if I was ahead, uh, the rationalization to keep playing more was, well, I'm, I'm playing with the house's money, so let's try to win more. So it didn't, at the end of the day, it didn't matter where I was in that cycle. It was, uh, it was all about rationalizing, uh, continuing to play. Um, I got hit, uh, you know, in addition to those big wins I mentioned, I got hit by a weird voice disorder uh, about that same time. And for a while, I couldn't lecture. Uh, I'd been singing semi-professionally with the group as well. And all of a sudden, I, I was um, unable to sing. I lost control of my vibrato and lower part of my vocal range. And, and until we figured out what was going on, uh, and it was a good year or so before we were able to... Um, identify the issue and, and the treatment. Um, it really drove me into a depression, um, gosh, in my relationship, in my work life. Uh, and so I can look back now and, and say that for, for the first time, I was starting to use gambling as a way to escape uh, from having to talk with people, uh, explain what was going on with my, my voice. Um, and then, uh, you know, even, uh, uh, even later on when you know, I would meet the woman who, who would become my uh, wife and 
uh, for a time we we gambled together and had fun and then it got to the point where we were gambling almost every day and it started to have a negative impact on both our finances and relationship and we decided we needed to stop cold turkey and so this is probably around 2004 or so and it, it had started to, to have a financial impact for sure on our lives we both had very good jobs but but those uh, those debts were starting to pile up and um for uh, several months, I was abstinent, and she was able to quit cold turkey without any uh, trouble. Um, and then after three or four months, unbeknownst to my, my then wife, I uh, went back out and started gambling again. And that's kind of the first time I, I look back and I say that I'm, I'm in, you know, I know it's not clinically accurate, but, you know, full-blown addiction at that point when I'm starting to lie to the people I care about most in this world about what I'm doing and the money I'm spending. That's, that's pretty, pretty serious. Um, and uh, so uh, over the course of the year, I hit it and then I came clean on my own um, to my wife. So in some ways, you can look at that as one of the very earliest uh, steps in my recovery, the acknowledgement that I you know, recognized I was lying to my family. Um, I, I had a problem. I, I was not convinced at all at that point in time. It wasn't something I could control, but I at least came clean. I said, you know, I, uh, you know I'll, I'll go see somebody about this. It was the first time that I um, uh, went to a 12-step meeting. And um, I remember it being somewhat cathartic, uh, sharing about what I'd been doing. I had a little baby girl on the, uh, the way, my one and only. And I you know, shared about not wanting to raise her in this environment. Uh, but by the time the end of that meeting came, I had heard people who had uh, lost their families because of gambling, who had lost their freedom and spent time in, in prison because of their gambling. Uh, there were uh, several people who shared about trying to end their own lives over their gambling. And um, I, was, I was not nearly close to any of those at that time. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad I came, but I'm sure glad I'm not like all the other people in this room because I would never do any of those things, right? <laughs> and so uh, I thought just hearing those stories was gonna be enough to, to keep me from gambling again. And once again, I was abstinent for three or four months and I, I kind of used that um, as evidence that I could control my gambling because look, I haven't gambled. And so once again, I went out and tested the waters and in, in pretty short order, it was out of control uh, very quickly again. The limits were back up to what they'd been, the lying behavior, the hiding behavior, behavior the, the hidden debts uh, started to pile up. And so I repeated that whole cycle again over the course of a year, came clean on my own. Uh, second time around, went to see a therapist, but you know, I, I almost personify my, my illness in this area. I think of it as another person or relationship in, in my life, even though it's part of me. I, um, it, it was pretty sneaky. I, I sought out a therapist, but I didn't try to find anybody with any experience in addiction at all, much less a gambling addiction. So I went through my employee assistance program at work. I said, I've got marital problems, which was certainly true, um, but the root of those was my gambling. So I, I did a few sessions with that person. The gambling came up, and, and they mentioned 12-step meetings. I said, well, I've tried that. I don't think it's for me. And, um, uh, you know, repeated this cycle very perversely once again, uh, abstinent for several months, went back out. Um, and the only thing that was different year over year is that the amount of debt uh, was about three times what it had been the previous year, each time. And the year after that, 
three times that year. And, and the other thing that was different the last time around is that my then wife found out the extent to which I had been uh, gambling, um, doing an online credit check, not because she didn't trust me, but because we were looking at getting a loan and all of a sudden here popped up all of these credit cards that she had no idea about. She didn't know about some payday loans I had out there. And so it was that moment when she confronted me about that, that for the very first time I felt I was on the verge of losing uh, my family and access to my little girl who was at that time about two years old. And that if I didn't do something pretty serious to, to get better, I was gonna lose both of them. Even though she never threatened that, um, that, was, that was how I felt. And so uh, I, I pinpoint that moment really as, as the beginning of my true recovery um, uh, from this illness where I did commit to a, uh, you know, some professional therapy. And they also required you know, minimum attendance at a few 12-step meetings every week. Um, and it was really in pretty short order, I came to understand the potential power of those group therapies and, and having that shared experience with people that you might otherwise have nothing in common with, right, that you've all experienced the, this crazy feeling of, of needing and wanting to gamble and feeling at times it's the solution to your problems. Uh, or the the medicine to escape from your problems where you can you can kind of not feel anything for a while and you know that's in common with, with so many of the stories that I hear in those rooms and being able to um, share what's worked for me uh, for people who are just coming in now um, you know through the lens of 14 and a half years almost in in my recovery today um, it, it's so important for me to stay engaged with those uh, those groups even now, even though I, I can honestly say I haven't had an urge to gamble in very many years, uh, to be there for those people who are just devastated uh, um, in this moment and helping them know that things can get better and that I know how they're feeling and here's what worked for me and maybe it will work for you is incredibly gratifying. And in fact, I I have um, dedicated a good portion of both my professional and, and personal life um, over the last eight to 10 years, at least, in, you know, on, on public advocacy and awareness and uh, in all sectors of society on this issue, because I feel it's, it's very important. Uh, I can relate so much to everything that you said. I mean, some of the similarities between my story, even though you know we gamble on completely different things, like from what I've learned through this whole process is it, it it doesn't matter if we were a poker player, a daily fantasy player like myself. It doesn't matter if we were a heroin addict, if we were using alcohol or whatever. Like it's all, we're either chasing something or we're searching for something and, um, or trying to cover up whatever feelings we've got underneath. And um, I mean, for example, like when you talked about your, you know, your wife finding out by doing a credit check, that was what exactly what happened for myself the first time I got caught. So wow. I've been caught twice. So Back in 2018, my wife and I were living with my parents to try to save money for a home. And I had a credit card and I had been using it and paying it off and using it and paying it off on the on FanDuel at the time. And she did a credit check to, you know, just to begin the process of finding a loan. And that's when she found out about everything. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, I was able to stop because of this, that was the same thing. I felt like I was going to lose my family. But because I didn't address these underlying issues that I've had for most of my life, because I had drug addictions in the past, um, I've been clean since 2009. But you know, I started with the betting in 2017, 
Um, but at that time, when she caught me in 2018, um, I was able to stop because I was, like you said, I was scared to lose my family. Um, but because I didn't truly dedicate myself to any recovery program, I just thought abstinence just stop. Um, I ended up relapsing a year later when we bought our home and all these emotional triggers happened. I felt like we had overcommitted to a home and I wasn't going to be able to financially support my family and these feelings of less than and not good enough and, and just not being worth it for my family, essentially. Like I decided to start gambling again. Um, now, you know, I know you said you stopped and started relapsed a few times. Um, and obviously you've done therapy, like, um, did you address or kind of figure out what it was that was pushing you into gambling? I know you said it was fun at first and it was fun for me too. At first, I, you know, I played free ESPN fantasy. I did season long leagues with my best friends. And, you know, at first I tried daily fantasy just to try to gain some money, you know, for various reasons to keep us on Long Island, whatever, like to appear as a better husband and partner so that, you know, there'd be no reason to leave me. Um, so, um, yeah. So, you know, in your therapies or, you know, just from self-reflection doing the step work, did you realize when it went from fun to compulsion and, and what were those underlying feelings and, or whatever it was that made you unable to stop? Yeah. So I understand a lot more about that today. And occasionally I still have these little revelations, even, you know, after 14 years beginning this process. And, um, you know, I know so much more just from the research world and being a researcher myself, I really kind of gobbled up a lot of the, the literature to try and figure out, I, I think as most of us do, right, if we're afflicted with an illness or we have a loved one who is, we want to go out and learn all we can about how to make that better, right, and, and avoid making it worse. And, and so, you know, I learned things like um, a lot of the trauma that I experienced as a young child. Um, you know, I come from multiple broken homes. My parents divorced when I was three, both remarried, both divorced, both remarried. And so I, I went back and forth, not actually really not back and forth. At the age of 10, I, uh, my mom divorced her second husband. And I, I guess I needed a father figure and moved down to Texas to live with my father at the age of 10. Um, and that was a, a pretty big culture shock going from having a bunch of friends and kind of leaving this little clique to not knowing anybody, not understanding what people were saying that, you know, West Texas drawl was pretty heavy and couldn't understand. I didn't have any friends, um, experienced a lot of bullying in junior high and actually tried to cover that up and not let anybody know it was happening because I was embarrassed by it, you know, that these kids were beating me up with some regularity and, uh, I, I witnessed a lot of psychological abuse from my father towards women in his life um, that was pretty distressing. And so, you know, we know today that, that, that the more of this sort of thing you experience as a child, the more chances you have of developing some type of addictive disorder later on. Um, I've got a long family history, so I know that's part of it. I've probably got some of that genetic uh, hardwiring, you know, already in place to be you know, more susceptible to than the average person. Um, um, addiction goes back at least three generations on my father's side. And that was something I wasn't completely aware of until I got into recovery and started uh, asking you know, older members of my family uh, about. And 
you know, all the way back to my great grandfather. And I have no direct proof, but I've read 130 year old letters that he wrote home to his mom as a young man. Uh, and every single one just about asks for money for a different reason. And it just, it reminded me of myself when I was in that, that cycle, whether you were my, my best friend or a family member, I could find some pretty creative ways to scam money from you and convince you that I needed, needed it when it was really just to, you know, hide the fact that I was gambling. Um, so uh, all of those things, um, the voice disorder I mentioned uh, was, a, was a big thing, uh, isolating from other people. So it became a very, you know, an antisocial activity, whereas lots of my gambling had been social act activity before. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, other, other pain and challenges I'd experienced in my marriage. Um, also, I think just the challenge of, of having a new child, right? That was, uh, you know, even though it had started before her birth, you know, it definitely accelerated during that time when, you know, learned my wife was pregnant and this huge life change was, was coming, right? It was a way for me to relieve stress uh, uh, at the time, go out and, and gamble and, and, and not have to worry for a few hours. Now, mind you, I, I didn't think this is why I was doing gambling at all at the time, right? I had other rationalizations and it wasn't until I got into recovery that I even recognized most of this and why I was doing it. Uh, but it's only, you know, <laughs> looking back through today's lens, I, I can recognize most of this. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible that, uh, you know, obviously you've been in, in it for 14 years and you're still coming to realizations as you go on. Um, I've been in this under a year and, you know, I come to new realizations every day and I find it to be a, a gift of recovery and of therapy to have the self-awareness or the, just the foresight to or be able to sit and think and kind of process why am I feeling what I'm feeling? A lot of mm -hmm. times in the past, I would, uh, I, I would feel a certain way and I, it would just be because of that. And now like, I, I can like, normally it's like two or three steps removed from what I'm actually feeling. And a lot of it leads back to a lot of what you're talking about. I have a lot of, uh, uh, childhood trauma, whatever it is, you know, it's just the difficulties. My parents divorced also, it was a very difficult divorce. Um, a lot of, uh, negative talk back and forth about one another, um, I had to be the one to decide where me and my brother and sister were going to live at the age of 12. And then after doing that, my father left for over a year. And, um, you know, that's where it's a lot of those inadequacies and feeling like, you know, abandonment issues at that age. Um, but, um, so, uh, you mentioned, uh, your voice disorder. Um, obviously you're a musician i couldn't imagine like as a fellow musician like just the thought of like there have been times at work where i've banged my finger too hard and i am worried that if my finger is broken i can't play my guitar and just the anxiety of not being able to play music or the ability to play music or it, what i will sometimes worry like what happens if i lose a finger and i can't play guitar again i would it would devastate me so i can imagine how much that must have affected you as a fellow musician um uh, and also, I, like I said, I've heard your story too, um, about, you know, what the, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, what's the musical instrument again? I'm sorry. That you oh, the cello. The cello. That's right. I apologize. Yes. Aye, aye, aye. Um, so I, I know you had waited for years to get this cello. You were, you know, so excited to get this and like the day before, or right before you were going to get it, you ended up having to give it back. That would probably break my heart, you know, waiting for years to get this instrument. 
and then you it's at your fingertips but you know you made the correct decision for your recovery for your family to give that up i'm curious did you ever get that instrument um i i did not so you're you're right i waited about seven years i had that that commissioned way back in 2000 and um, the instrument maker called me back in, or called me up in 2007 in the spring and said, it's almost ready. Sorry, it's taken me so long to build. Just wanted to give you a few months head up, heads up. And this is the last year of my total gambling craziness. I was, I had an incredible amount of debt behind the scenes. Um, I, I still had enough access to, uh, you know, convenience checks from enough credit card accounts that I knew I could cobble together $10,000 to, give him for this cello. Um, and, you know, even uh, met him in Boise and drove it back to Vegas. Uh, he said, you know, don't pay me for, for it now. Uh, let it acclimatize to, to the Vegas climate. Make sure it's still okay after a couple of weeks. And then you can send me the check. And you're right. It was that day before I was going to send him that check is when my wife discovered online all of this debt. And it was really just the very beginning of my starting to make amends to my family for what I'd done was was to agree not to buy that that cello and I'm I'm sure he had no problem selling it to the next person on his waiting list. Um, you know, and I told him I had a medical emergency in my family and I couldn't buy it, and that that was true. I didn't tell him what what the emergency was at the time, uh, and I never did get another cello, even though I I could afford to buy one uh, today. I, I still play the same old beater cello I've had since uh, college. Uh, it's got a lot, lot of idiosyncrasies, but it's it's served me just fine. And I, I'm old enough now that uh, I'm, I'm not going to be playing a ton professionally very much longer. And so, you know, it's it's okay. I use my mother on, or sorry, my money on other <laughs> things like, uh, you know, uh, spending time with my doing things with her. And because for the first two years of her life, I was absent a lot of times that, you know, I should have should have been there just because I was leaving her in daycare till the absolute moment before it closed. Cause I was yeah. at the casino gambling. Right. So, so um, you talked about, there were several different times you relapsed and this time you um, when you got caught this last time, this is, you know, 2007 and you've been bet free for over 14 years. Um, what I've realized through recovery is for me to stay bet free for me to stay clean. I have to do this of course for my family, but it's gotta be for me. Now, I know you said you were worried about losing your family, and I feel the same way. Can you tell us a little bit about what has been different this time around? How did you get through those early days, and how have you stayed bet-free for 14-plus years? Right. So, you know, when when that that last discovery my wife made happened, um, you know, I... The next day, I, I found a therapist who had experience specifically in um, a gambling addiction, went to see this gentleman, and on our second session, he mentioned uh, an intensive outpatient program at the Problem Gambling Center here in Las Vegas, and he said, he said it's a six-week program, uh, about three hours a day, uh, four days a week, um, you know, if you're interested, and the structure of that really appealed to me because I, I wasn't convinced that I could be accountable to myself just just seeing a therapist, you know, once a week or twice a week and all of that other time. I, I like this idea that there was this, this structure and this place to go to. And, and um, I, I can remember very clearly my very first day uh, walking into that group and uh, Dr. Robert Hunter, who's the founder of that, um, uh, the Problem Gambling Center, uh, was the... Uh, Kind of protege of Dr. Robert Custer, who is the the uh, 
only person mentioned by full name in some of the 12-step uh, literature for this issue, uh, was doing a lecture on, on the brain and, and addiction and talking about why, um, you know, those of us with an addictive disorder of some kind, why our brain responds differently to these substances or behavior than the typical person. He didn't make it a, a bad thing. He says it's, it's kind of a blue eyes, brown eyes thing. You know, you're, you're born with this predisposition. You're much more likely to get it. And he explained it really, really eloquently. Although I, you know, I recognize today it's not entirely scientifically accurate, but he said, you know, you can, you can divide your, your brain into three, three plate, you know, three uh, sections at the back. You've got your brain stem that connects to your spinal column and you know, is in control of all of those things you never think about, like your breathing or how you gesture when you talk normally, you know, things like this that are involuntary. And right at the front, you've got that, the prefrontal cortex behind the hardest part of your skull, which has evolved to protect that part of the brain where, you know, personality and rational thinking and poetry and music and all of these things that make us, um, you know, individual uh, you know, and personality where this lives, and then smack dab between those uh, two places, the midbrain, where um, there's a structure called the amygdala, and he went into, you know, how fight and flight and freeze and sex and hunger and addiction essentially live in that area, which, again, is not scientifically accurate, but, you know, a lot of the neurotransmitters like dopamine and norepinephrine and oxytocin, and a lot of the dysfunction that occurs uh, happens in that part of the brain, and he says, for, for you, that part of your brain hijacks the, the thinking part of your brain, which should be responsible for those rational decision makings, which is why most of you can go from that sensory input to the action without, without considering the consequences uh, of that action. Whereas most people in a split second can evaluate and engage what the, what the consequences will be and make that make that good decision. He says, when you, you know, addictions got a hold of you, you, you can't do that, or, or it's very, you know, very difficult to do that. And it was the first time anybody had ever said anything that made sense to me, honestly. I thought, you know, I thought I was just the world's biggest a-hole, and I must subconsciously want out of my marriage, because why else would I be hurting these people I care about most in the world? That, that must be it. And so, you know, I recognize, it's like, okay, I can't reach in and change the hardwiring in my brain. Teach me what to do to change my behaviors. Teach me what to do when I get that strong urge to deal with that and not give into it. You know, how do I? And so that was a long process of, you know, the therapy aspects you already mentioned in terms of identifying the, the triggers and the things that had happened earlier in my life and my father's, you know, introduction introducing me to gambling activities at a pretty young age and how that was associated with my relationship with him and uh, really coming to this realization that there, um, there were lots of other things to do in Las Vegas besides gamble. I mean, there's an incredible amount of things to do that are fantastic inside and right outside this, this city that don't involve uh, gambling. And at the time, I thought, no, there's nothing to do here except gamble. Well, you know, that's not, absolutely not true. And so um, my friend circle changed a little bit. Um, that was helpful. The way I learned to interact or, or not interact uh, uh, with people um, or react to them. I, you know, I used to have a terrible road rage problem. 
And, you know, tools like the serenity prayer um, are very important to me, even though I'm not at all religious. Uh, I, it's an incredibly powerful tool, tool for helping me slow down my thinking and identifying whether a certain situation is in my control or not, and more quickly letting go of that situation. So today, recognizing that that driver who is cutting me off or somebody else off or is speeding at 100 miles an hour down the interstate, not allowing that to distract me from my own driving so that I'm making it the road, you know, unsafe for everybody around me was a, a pretty big realization. And so those tools that I initially applied to my gambling, really, I apply to other areas of my life today, which if I, if I let them go sideways could become the triggers for what led me to gambling uh, in the first place. Yeah, for sure. I feel the same way too. I, um, I'm a truck driver, so I'm on the road all the time. And I used to get angry all the time at people. I'd be like, people, you know, in a truck, people cut you off constantly. And I would let it get me angry. You know, I'd, you know, flash my lights, I'd honk my air horn. Now I, you know, I I can't control how they're gonna live their life. Maybe they're having a bad day and you know, I feel sorry for them. I I I try to empathize with people more instead of you know, reacting negatively. And I think a lot of that is through recovery also. Um, so, you know, what I talk a lot about my recovery, obviously, and um, I talk about what works for me. And for me, the the two big things, well, there's several things. For me, it's the therapy has been the most important. The um, support groups, of course, are are pivotal. I need to be in those once or twice a week, or I choose to be in those once or twice a week because that's what I want. You know, that's what works for me. I journaled in the beginning. I started by listening to podcasts and now I do this podcast. So um, I know you explained it a bit already, but what, what do you think has been the most effective thing for you? Because everybody's different. What works for me is not going to work for the next person. So maybe yeah. your suggestions may work for someone else who you know, what I suggest doesn't work for them. Yeah. So a couple of tools that were really important to me early on, and I was a little bit of an oddball in that once I got into that formal treatment, um, I, excuse me, I experienced very few um, strong urges once I got into that cycle, but I know people who are doing everything right in their recovery and are experiencing multiple urges every day for a long time before that starts to tail off. And so one of the tools that was introduced to me um, that was effective in that realm was, was making a little list of eight or 10 things that I could do in any sit or there would be some things on that list that I could do in any moment, whether I was in my car, walking down the street at home, and that urge hit for whatever reason. They could be something as simple as, you know, you know, brushing the cat or, or uh, cleaning the toilet or jog around the block. Something, um, you know, that, that I learned that was really critical is that while urges are very individualized, there's no such thing as an urge that goes on forever. And in fact, the average urge is three to five minutes. And if you can find something else to occupy your mind and, and focus for three to five minutes, often that urge will have passed. Doesn't mean another one's not gonna come along in an hour, but you know, having that tool, that, that sounds really simple, but you know, being able to pull that, that card out and look at it and say, okay, I'm gonna do this, this right now, rather than, than you know, turn left into this casino parking lot. Um, um, I think I really learned to listen to other people's experiences. Uh, that's been, 
uh, you know, the, the, this idea of acceptance um, has been quite a gift to me in my recovery program, recognizing the the uh, the differences of opinion that exist there on uh, you know any any uh, number of levels um, that are kind of tearing us apart sometimes as a as a country and recognizing that that the commonalities in the most important areas are are so much greater than than those issues you know we we tend to focus on and it's those commonalities that I hear now in meetings and you know how can I help this individual that I may not at all be uh, politically or socially aligned with in a number of different ways, but is suffering in the same way that I did. It's not not for me to judge any of those other areas of life that are their choice. Um, that's been tremendously freeing because that's another thing I don't have to get as angry. I, I won't say I'm, I'm not perfect in that area, but I, I don't get as angry about it um, as I as I used to because I can more quickly step back and say, well, this is you know it's none of my business or this is not something I can I have any control over. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that with regards to the serenity prayer and really staying connected to those healthy therapies, whether they're formal or not, right? Um, whether that's, you know, uh, checking in with a personal therapist a few times a year. Uh, I, I try not to go more than a week, uh, even today, without uh, checking in at least online on a Zoom, a Zoom meeting for some group therapy. Um, one of the most significant events that happened uh, several years into my recovery is that a therapist who was very, very important in helping me in that intensive outpatient program after 37 years uh, without a bet went back out. And this is, some, this is somebody who was a trained therapist who had experienced this in their life, who was saying all the right things to me in my therapeutic process, but had already begun to lose that recovery in different ways in his life long before he went back out and made that bet and people didn't recognize it. And it was so shocking um, to the recovery community when that happened. Um, I mean, this is a, a person who had started meetings across this country and even internationally uh, early in his recovery uh, and was just beloved. Uh, and then all of a sudden, people were all upset because they had put him on this pedestal, right, as this greater than person because he had 37 years of recovery. Yeah. And it really brought home, you know, one of the, I, I love all of these cliches that exist, you know, in 12-step meetings. And, and one of the ones I like is that, you know, we're all different lengths of time away from our last bet, but we're all the same distance away from our next one potentially, exactly. right? And so it's it's one of those things that I love. And I recognize that, you know, it didn't matter that he had 37 years of, of abstinence. Um, you know, people with a lot more time with than, than me have fallen back off. And if I don't do if I don't do those things that are important to maintain my own recovery, that that could be me tomorrow. So I'll try to do the things that are healthy for me and for others in my life today, so that so hopefully that doesn't happen. I couldn't agree more. Perfectly said. Um, even if you are not, you know having urges at the time, like I haven't had urges since I stopped, but, you know, I also realize, you know, when you start to think you've got it, that's when it really starts to creep back in when you, when you back away from these things, like I told you a little earlier, I, um, have had previous drug addictions. So I got clean in 2009. I went to NA for about a year and for various reasons, I backed away. I thought I got it. It's behind me. I'm good. And I've mm -hmm. never touched a drug since then. Um, but obviously because I never dealt with any of my underlying emotional issues, I ended up, you know, 
slipping into gambling and it became an issue. Um, and like you said, uh, 37 years, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's just one day at a time. That's the only way we do this. And yeah. it doesn't mean you have to do a meeting every single day, you know, do every, every single person is different. Like you said, <laughs> I haven't had an urge since day one. Some people have urges years in, um, there's just so many tools out here for us to use. And, uh, just, you know, being aware that we, that this is a lifelong thing, but that's okay. It's, it's, just, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with us for being any type of addict, whether it's gambling, drug addiction, alcohol use disorder, whatever it is, there's nothing wrong with you. If this is who you are, it's yeah. just admitting that's, that's who we are and, and learning to become comfortable with it. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. Um, Absolutely. So I know you are a member of the Nevada advisory committee on problem gambling, and you also are um, aligned or allied with the national council on problem gambling. Do you want to talk a bit about what you guys are doing uh, currently, especially with the explosion of online gambling around the country? Sure. So, you know, a couple of years into my own recovery, I, I really became interested in the idea of public advocacy on this issue because they're, uh, there's, you know, society as a whole is not keyed in to, to gambling disorder as a, as a real thing in the way that we are to substances, right? Especially there's been this big focus on opiates for the past several years, which is great, but I wish that had encompassed the broader discussion of, you know, alcohol, other substances, gambling, gaming uh, disorders that are all connected. Um, um, and it's your story is so common. We have so many people come into the problem gambling center that are clean and sober uh, with a substance, often sometimes for you know a couple decades or more, and they can't figure out why they can't stop gambling. And it's because exact same illness, just coming out in a, a different way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really, um, I, I really decided, hey, I want to be one of these public faces and kind of out myself. And I, I didn't know if it was entirely safe, and and. Uh, um, but I was I was pretty open with my my colleagues. Um, I outed myself and for, for the first time really in a training session for what's called the CASA program, uh, court appointed special advocates. It's to represent um, children in the foster care system and help them find safe and permanent homes. And you know addiction is a recurring theme and why they, a lot of them have been removed from the home. And so to have that connection to keep me on the straight and narrow and that experience to help. Um, people going through that training, as well as parents who are hope, hopefully getting better so that they can be reunited with their kids was a quite a gift. And the sky didn't fall, you know, these first few times I shared. And so I became much more open about it. Um, it doesn't jeopardize any of my careers to, to do so. And I've had so many anecdotes come back. And as a result, I, I first started as a volunteer with the Nevada Council on Problem Gambling, administering some of their youth awareness and family awareness programs in the schools and in the communities. Uh, um, and then eventually uh, became employed as a consultant to that organization. Uh, and then since 2012, um, applied for consideration and, and was appointed by the governor of Nevada uh, to the advisory committee on problem gambling and have um, served in that role since 2012. And we are a, a group of, I, I believe it's nine individuals uh, from across um, industry treatment research, as well as just general um, knowledge um, uh, about this issue who help um, 
decide how to allocate the state problem gambling funds in Nevada. We're involved in advocating to the legislature for hopefully an increase in funding for uh, treatment. We have a couple things that are a little bit unique in, in Nevada. One is that if you have a gambling problem in this state, or if you are affected by somebody else's gambling problem, you can receive uh, treatment free of charge, whether that's one-on-one -on -one or intensive outpatient or even residential treatment. And that's covered through that fund um, uh, for, again, either the person with, with the gambling problem or somebody that they're affecting. And we also have a gambling treatment diversion court, which is like um, specialty courts that exist in most states with regards to substances, uh, veterans, uh, mental health issues. So uh, a person who's looking at prison time uh, as a result of crimes committed in furtherance of uh, a gambling disorder can actually be sentenced to diversion and treatment avoid prison time, uh, be able to start making restitution to their victims immediately, as opposed to perhaps never, um, you know, they're getting that treatment they, they need uh, that they won't get if they're in prison and much more likely to reoffend when they get out. And of course, it allows them to stay with their families and for all of us as taxpayers, not to have to foot the bill for somebody with an addiction in, in prison, right, for um, crimes. And there are exclusionary criteria. If there's a crime of violence involved or a crime against a child or a senior involved, you're, you're not eligible. But the amount doesn't matter. You know, if you've embezzled $10 million from your business, you can still, you're just as eligible as the person who just did a few thousand dollars. And at the end of the day, if you complete that program successfully, you have that felony expunged from your record, which is an amazing thing. Uh, very, very important. So I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in the loop on helping uh, craft some of these policy decisions and advocacy things that are going to be really a, a benefit to so many people that have come after me. Um, and then that translated into um, a role on the board of directors for the National Council on Problem Gambling this past year, where I serve on a number of of committees. And um, there are so many national issues right now around uh, problem gambling. We are experience, you've probably talked about this already on your podcast, but we're experiencing, you know, the largest um, expansion of legalized gambling in this nation's history right now with the legalization of sports wagering, uh, the, um, the expansion of, of fantasy sports uh, wagering. And um, we had this perfect storm of the pandemic, which, you know, led to a lot of risk factors for lots of mental health disorders, right? Including uh, addiction of any kind. At the same time, you have businesses shutting down and state, state coffers are now empty or don't have tax dollars coming in and they can't maintain services. So a lot of states, I think, fast-tracked legalization of sports wagering as a way to bring more money into the state because they were, they were hurting like the rest of us just in different ways, right? But, um, you know, it's... it's um, it's unfortunate that, that that's the, the mechanism for you know, bringing the money into the states. I think the rationalizations and are, are often good and well-intentioned, but unless states are, um, you know, are building those support systems in advance or in conjunction with legalization uh, of these activities, they're in for a world of hurt or you know, a small percentage of people are in for an incredible world of hurt. Uh, and while we may be a, a small percentage of the overall population, the amount of damage that we can do to ourselves and our families and to the community at large is pretty huge um, compared to uh, how much it costs to treat us or, or just take preventative measures in terms of education and awareness before it becomes an issue, right? So 
um, being able to advocate for states uh, um, uh, allocating a, like even 1% of their tax revenues from sports wagering or gambling specifically to go to the problem gambling um, uh, awareness, treatment, education, that type of thing is, is really, really important. It's, it's not an anti-gambling message at all. And these organizations I work for are not anti-gambling organizations, but they recognize that for a percentage of people, uh, it becomes a true addiction and there needs to be these resources. Um, and um, yeah, gosh, we could, we could go on for hours for this subject, yeah. but I, I don't want to, I know we're kind of running out of time, I think. So. Oh, it's okay. No, that's great. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. No, that's, that's, that's perfect. Um, I fully agree. I'm the same way. I'm not anti-gambling. I don't think, really, I don't think very many things should be, I think, uh, illegal. I think everyone has their own choices to make. And I think uh, many, you know, can gamble responsibly. And I don't think that because of the, whatever the percentages, I know the national, the percentages, they say 2%. I believe it's much higher than that. I'm, I'm sure it is because I'm sure it's just underreported, but whatever, even if it is 2%, you know, I don't believe that it should be illegal, but like you said, the amount of money that comes in from the stat I read just in New York alone, over a billion dollars was wagered just in New York and 80% of those uh, bets were from new users. So I, that's a ton of money coming in. That's a, even if it's 2%, that's a large percentage of people that are going to become addicted gamblers. And I don't think it's too much of an ask to just ask for 1% of those profits to, to help fund every every state that has legalized gambling luckily like you said in your state and luckily in our state um therapy and counseling is paid for and i don't know where we would be without that because my wife is an affected other and she's been going to counseling longer than i have she was the first one to go to therapy and mm -hmm. she's been going since the beginning about a month in she started going and um our local council has been paying that this entire time. And through going to therapy, she has now gone into her own career path where now she's gone back to school to become a therapist because it's helped her so much. So I think it's it's really important to get this funding to help not just us, but the affected others in our lives. And um, yeah, asking for 1% is not, I don't think that's a big ask. You know, they can make their 99%, which is fine. It'd be, but, and I have no problem with that. I don't think gambling should be illegal, but there needs to be help in every state. That, that is my goal, hopefully for the future is that every state has this money allocated so the people that need it can get the help. Absolutely. And as you're aware, there is zero federal funding zero. for this issue, mm -hmm. research, treatment, uh, otherwise. So that, that's another area we need to get fixed because the, the federal government definitely benefits uh, tax dollar wise from from this industry as well. And so uh, we need to allocate a percentage just like we do for substance use disorders and mm -hmm. programs and treatment uh, for problem gambling. Agreed. Well, thank you very, very much for doing this, Ted. I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, I appreciate you being my first interview. Um, and thank you for being so open and sharing your story and everything that you've been doing. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for providing this, this vehicle as yet another way to get uh, awareness out into the public. I think it's so important what you're doing. Thank you very much, Ted. And uh, thank you everyone for listening and be good to yourselves. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I also wanted to add my wife, Kelly, started a podcast for affected others, people who've been affected by those of us who have gambling addictions or other addictions. 
It's titled I Butterfly, a podcast for affected others. I will leave it in the show notes. Please go listen. I think she's doing a great job. And I would send it to any of your affected others in your life, your wife, your spouse, husband, family, kids, anyone you feel like you've affected through your addictions or gambling. So please check that out. Talk to you soon. Here's where to get help. You can call or text 1-800-522-4700. That's the National Council on Problem Gambling. Or you could call 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537. This is where I found um, the link to my therapist through my local counselor. And then also, we cannot forget our affected others. My wife goes to Gammonon every week, and it's been a huge help to her. So anyone in your life who you feel like needs help or you've affected through your gambling, you can go to gammonon.org, G-A-M dash A-N-O-N dot org. The number is 718-352-1671.